Onasu. So today there will be no marathon. Get much closer to a half an hour, but I did say I would deliver something yesterday that I failed to deliver simply because we ran out of time. And that is an explanation for the placebo effect. Of course, whenever I say that, I want to kind of gag because because it, it just the phrasing itself is so misleading. It should be simply called the mental effect. Mental effect. That would be okay. Mental effect. So imagine, imagine there's a mayor of a city, and the mayor comes into and it comes into a bank and he and he robs the bank. The mayor, you know, give me your money, your life. You know the mayor, and everybody knows he's the mayor. Give me your money. And then he runs out, and then the police come in, and they know exactly who did it. But there's no way they're going to say the mayor did it. But they find a little old lady in a wheelchair (laughs) that was across the street from the bank when it was robbed. And she's the prime suspect. After all, she was there. And that's about what you can say of the placebo effect. Everybody knows it's a mental effect. It's faith, expectation, belief, desire, trust. Everybody knows that. But it's the mayor. That is, there's no way that a materialist can say that something so intangible as trust, faith, and so forth can be responsible for anything, let alone healing the body. So, but the placebo effect, uh, the placebo, you know, that little sugar tablet, innocent bystander, like a little old lady in a wheelchair, okay, it's a placebo effect, folks. And you actually find some people calling about the effects of the placebo. It's mind-numbing. But so there is simply, and I've I've checked actually with world experts, one in in Italy, one in America. Do you have an explanation for how this works? That it's not simply, I'll take this and I'll feel better. No, I'll take this for my something very specific in the body, and lo and behold, it actually works exactly what you want. Even people taking placebo and their cancer going into remission. Scientists don't know. Medical doctors don't know how to make cancer go into remission. Otherwise, they'd never use uh, these awful, brutal techniques like chemotherapy and radiation. I mean, it's really violence against the body. They'd never do that if they could say, oh, well, just take this, this pill for, and this will make your cancer go into remission. If they had a chemical like that, they'd just give that to everybody. But no, there are cases where a person takes a placebo, a sugar tablet, and then cancer goes into remission. And, and the scientists don't know how to do that. And the person taking the placebo certainly doesn't know how to do that. And so the flat-out answer, and I've spoken with world experts, if you hear something different, let me know, because I'm not here to promote a dogma, but I'm trying to find out what's true. There simply is no explanation whatsoever in terms of modern biomedicine for how the placebo effect can possibly work. It just shouldn't work. And if it came out of the blue the whole medical profession would say that's impossible, that's magic, it never happens. Except it happens so often that hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on a regular basis by the pharmaceutical industry to exclude the placebo effect so they can find out what's the actual effect of the chemicals they're making. Okay? So materialism offers no explanation whatsoever. To my mind, it's something like the ultraviolet catastrophe or the, the, purple, the, purple, the purple catastrophe black body radiation, it was something in classical mechanics, classical physics, that simply shouldn't have been the case. But the empirical evidence was there, and it, there was no way, no way, no explaining it. It's called black body radiation. It's rather subtle, um, it, but it shouldn't have happened. 
there was no explanation for it in all of classical physics. And so they just said, well, we'll figure it out one day. Well, the man who figured it out was Max Planck with a totally radical idea, and that is that energy is quantized. And then that opened up a whole revolution in modern physics, which still isn't finished, because nobody really knows the nature of you know, what, what it really implies, what's, what's, what's the process of measurement and so forth. So to my mind, the so-called placebo effect is really like the ultra, ultraviolet catastrophe for materialism. It happens. Everybody knows it happens. It's extremely expensive to exclude it from clinical trials. That's why you need these double-blind experiments and all of that. But there's no explanation for it at all. Moreover, if we go back to a Cartesian model of some immaterial soul or consciousness coming in and getting inserted into, you know, as some extra substance, then there's no explanation there either. How would this soul know how to catalyze anything in the body? I wish upon a star. I mean, you know, there would be no connect, right? But consider what came out of yesterday's talk. This would be very short on placebo effect. I want to move back to Shantideva. But consider what John Wheeler was suggesting about the whole universe. And that is the entire universe is best understood not as fundamentally composed of space, time, matter, and energy, but information being primary, fundamental, and everything else being derivative from information. And then, therefore, with that, in that, with that in mind, the whole universe being regarded as an information processing system, in which, again, information is primary. Well, consider there's the macrocosm, and the microcosm is your body-mind system. It's not fundamentally just a bunch of cells and electricity, chemicals and electricity, in extremely complex configurations, which is what the materialists would have us believe. And then they have no explanation for the placebo effect. It's not that nor is it simply slapping together two totally different substances, somehow mind and matter coming together. Nobody has ever figured out how that can work. But rather consider your mind-body system being an information processing system. In other words, information is core, and the matter and the mind are derivative from the flow of information. The mind and matter, mind as such, and matter as such being derivative of information. Consider that's, that, that is a possibility. Then if you tell someone, Chucho, you have this illness, take this piece of paper and rub it on your head three times, and I, as a Harvard, a Harvard physician, endowed chair, I, I guarantee you this is very special paper. And rub it on your head three times, and this will make, you know, whatever the problem is, go away. And it, of course, you don't, you doesn't have to, placebo doesn't have to be a substance. It can be, recite this phrase, uh, just look at me, just... or. Be assured, this will be cured in three days. Don't worry about it. You know, it can be anything, really. It can be anything. It can be a gesture. It can be wearing a white coat saying Harvard or Cambridge or something like that on it. It can be anything, right? But it's the information. It's the information going in that I'm telling you. If you just rub this on your head, you know, your pimples will go away. And I'm, I'm sure it will take three days, but here it is. And if your system is fundamentally an information system, I've just given you information. And from the inside out, the information will then catalyze exactly those physiological events needed to make the pimples go away. Now, actually, I don't know whether this placebo for pimples, that would be you know, a case to be studied. But the placebo works for an enormously wide variety of psychological and physiological problems. So if your system, mind-body system, is fundamentally information processing system and not simply matter, then that makes good sense because you're going directly to the core, 
through information, information being transferred, and from the inside out, that information in the system will then work its way out and manifest what's needed to bring about the expected result. And bear in mind there's a complete symmetry here. The placebo effect occurs when you, when you say something good, good is going to happen. You'll be healed of your warts, you'll get over your sinus headaches, and so forth and so on. But it works just like karma. It works both ways. And that is people, this happens a lot, people diagnose themselves because they don't have any insurance in America. A, a lot of people, they have no insurance, they can't go to a doctor, they just can't afford it. It's so expensive. So what do they do? They go to the public library, get on the internet, and they try to diagnose themselves. And then they see some symptoms that they have, and they say, oh, yeah, this disease, yeah, those are some of my symptoms. I, pro I must have that. And then they start getting the rest of the symptoms of the disease that they've identified on the web, and they don't have that at all. It's called the nocebo effect. It's <laughs> the technical term. You start getting the symptoms that you believe you must have because you have the disease you've identified on the web. It's so clearly this is a matter of conceptual designation. So that actually solves the placebo effect. Not with Cartesian dualism, not with materialistic monism, but understanding that information is primary, or as our Theravada master said yesterday, what is fundamental is a flow of experience, out of which then nama rupa are two aspects of the experience, out of which mano then differentiates mind and matter and conceptualization, classifies them all, labels them, and reifies them. So flow of experience, flow of information, tomatoes, tomatoes. But if that's fundamental, then this is no mystery. No mystery at all. So, we return now to the close application of mindfulness of body. And we've been looking at it from the inside, observing these sensations arising, earth, water, fire, air, the visual impressions of the body, the sounds made by the body. And you may accept, if, if you wish, the working hypothesis that all of these appearances are arising locally, that is, within your own substrate. And we ha all have our own substrates. But of course, the body is, that is, the body is there when you're not aware of it, right? Just as grass grows when nobody's looking. And so it's very helpful now as we're approaching a middle way. This is the Madhyamaka. Whenever you're approaching any kind of middle way, in practicing shamato or anything else, from my experience, the way to find the middle way is get a really clear bead, a really clear recognition of what are the extremes, and then vector in from that. So what are the two extremes? And they're not that difficult. And, and then, okay, now that, okay, at least I, I, know, I know where to look for the middle way. So what's one extreme? If, you're, if we're not aware of something, it doesn't exist. In other words, I'm, going to, I'm about to kill Miles. You ready? It, don't, it won't hurt. You ready, Miles? He just disappeared. I blinked, you know. Okay, when we're not looking the universe vanishes. Solipsism. Nihilism. That the universe depends upon our perceptions. Well, okay, if you want to believe that, if you, if you go back to your marijuana and have a nice day. You know. But there's one extreme, it's nihilism. And it really kind of defies the intelligence. It's, it's foolish, not many people hold that. One can imagine some people would. But there's one, and that is the universe needs us to be perceiving it to exist. In other words, atoms don't exist unless you're perceiving them. Or, the, or for, for example, let's make this a bit more tricky. The Higgs boson. This was a big deal for the Large Hadron Supercollider. And this has been in the air for, I think, years, if not decades, because it was hypothesized quite a long time ago, the Higgs boson, as that 
that particle that gives all other particles in the universe mass, gives them, gives them mass. And so does it exist or not? It was hypothesized, it was predicted, but it required such a high-energy accelerator, they couldn't, they couldn't test it. Well, then they got a big, big enough ones. The Europeans could afford it, the Americans couldn't. America only couldn't, couldn't afford that, so they dished, they dished their program for starting a big super collider in Texas. Couldn't afford it. But all of Europe, with its 500 million people, they got their pennies together and created it. And then they, you know, this brilliant science, brilliant technology, brilliant scientists, fantastic mathematics, then, beyond all reasonable doubt, they've now found compelling evidence that the Higgs boson exists. So we can ask, did the Higgs boson exist before they measured it? What's the Buddhist answer? Birke, what's the Buddhist answer? Did the Higgs boson exist before they measured it? Yes, it did. Exactly right. If, if they went to all that trouble, good, good guess. <laughs> but she said it with confidence. I like that. That's the way you learn to debate. Even if you don't have a clue, you say, I say yes. <laughs> Show some bravado there. She did. That was good. If they went to all that trouble, $6 billion, to discover something they invented, well, that's a bad investment. So no, the answer is no. It, it already existed. But now let's, it already existed. They discovered one of the crucial particles in the universe. Just as earlier physicists discovered electrons, they didn't suddenly, you know, they didn't just create them. They were, they, so when we hear the history of the universe, electrons were here a long time ago, protons and so forth and so on. They, 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 didn't, they, they didn't come into existence the first time they were measured. Otherwise, there'd be no difference between making a discovery and having an artifact of your measurement system. An artifact is just something that's spewed out of your measurement system in a vacuum, just, you know, there it is. So we need to give much more, res- and I don't think anybody disrespects here, uh, particle physics, but we need to give much more, re- much more respect to this magnificent discipline than to think they're just making this up as they go. Right? But now, having said that, and I stand by everything I just said, bearing, bearing in mind the advice Gishuken Sedin told me, that we're not refuting the existence of atoms, then where's the other one? Where's the other extreme? If one extreme is that, oh, no, 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 the Higgs boson, just, they just freshly created it, but it's just, a, it's just an artifact, it's just a figment, a creation of their device. They didn't discover anything about the universe. They simply discovered that the Large Hadron Supercollider can create Higgs bosons. Big deal. Okay, that's solipsism. So no distinction between artifact of the system and actually making a discovery about the natural world. So there's one. That would diss all of science, really. Indirectly, we just diss all of science. So it's just an artifact of your system. But the other one, which I would say most scientists do adopt, and most human beings adopt, is there's a universe out there. It's already out there. It comes right out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. The first five days, everything else was done except us. Then on the sixth day, God created us, and then we get to discover what he did during the first five days. So there's, you know, there's a very literal story that a number of people in the United States still take, you know, five days means five days. Um, but even when one takes a more metaphorical, poetical vision, okay, that's, that's an ancient text, but now we've expanded that out to 13.7 billion years. So, so you know, just we took an accordion and spread it out. Um, but the view of metaphysical realism is that the universe really is just absolutely out there. And it's simply being discovered. We're trying to represent it, represent it, with our mat- mat- mathematical theories that, provi- that, that illuminate the mathematical regularities of the laws of nature, 
but also the existence of particles, waves, cells, galaxies, meteors, and so forth and so on. But it's all out there. It's a done deal. And science is here to represent it, and we're doing a better, 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 better job, at least asymptotically approaching a complete and correct map. That's the ideal of metaphysical realism, that it's everything out there is inherently existent by its own nature. We happen to label it as Higgs boson, but we could have called it Goldilocks. It doesn't really matter. It's already out there, and we just got clever enough to be able to measure it. But it's absolutely out there, right? Every, and everything is. That's metaphysical realism. That's exactly what Majamak is refuting, and that's exactly what John Wheeler and these others are refuting as well. Stephen Hawking said, no, that's not what's really out there. What's really out there is just an ocean of possibility, the superposition state, the quantum reality, which is all just an ocean, a probability field, but no actualities at all. If you're asking what's there prior to measurement, you know. So, so one extreme, it's already out there and we're simply representing it. And the other one is we're just making it up as we go, just as if in a vacuum. So where's the middle way here? Now that we found that, okay, now where can we vector in? Anybody's interested in philosophy, read the, the works in the 1980s of a Harvard philosopher, very distinguished, Hilary Putnam. The Many Faces of Realism and, and, and Realism with a Human Face. Qu very deep, very clear, and very close to the Buddhist Madhyamaka view. And I don't think he ever studied it. I don't believe so. It's really quite remarkable philosophy. Right? But in terms of science, this anecdote I've told many times about His Holiness and His first, His Holiness Dalai Lama and the first encounter with Anton Seininger. And Anton Seininger talking about, based upon his experiments, finding that when you look for the electron, the elementary particles existing from their own side, already really there, you do not find them. That they're not already objectively existent. And he elaborated on this point. But based on experiment, not simply being a very, very brilliant theoretical physicist like a Stephen Hawking or a John Wheeler. And you remember the story? And then Dalai Lama, having heard this, he said, how could, you, how could you have come to that conclusion without understanding, without knowing Madhyamaka philosophy? You know? And then Anton Sahnanger, being this wonderful man, open-minded, as well as, of course, a brilliant scientist, he said, what's Madhyamaka philosophy? <laughs> well, fancy you should ask, you know, what better person on the planet to ask, please give me a nutshell of just the straight goods, what's the Madhyamaka? Boy, who would have better to ask than the man he just, you know. So his holiness then gave this quintessential nugget of the Madhyamaka view, the middle way view, the avoidance of these two extremes, nihilism and metaphysical realism. Anton, being this open-minded man with a European education, a classical Hochschule, or middle school, no, uh, secondary school education, so he was trained in the classics, Greek philosophy and so forth, good old-fashioned European education, which I have tremendous admiration for. So he, was, he wasn't philosophically naive. Right? He heard the Dalai Lama give this short exposition of Madhyamaka, and then Anton said, how could you, how could you have come to those conclusions without knowing quantum mechanics? So these are two brilliant people, each one so well embodying their own tradition. Anton was just kind of like an icon, really, being a superb scientist, but also being well-versed in, in Western philosophy. He, he, just, he was like, you know, one of the great Greeks re-embodied. He embodied that tradition. And the Dalai Lama embodies, to my mind, the whole Bodhisattva ideal. And they're coming together, this, and just finding this tremendous complementarity. So now we're coming to the body. We come to the body. 
And we have our impressions, of course, but even if we're sound asleep, our consciousness has slipped into the substrate, of course the body's still there. But now that would imply, you mean it, 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 you know, it's really there. It's really there, which means, I mean, really there, it means it's, it's totally there, absolutely there, independently there, right? The one lying in bed. It must be inherently existent, right? So let's do this. Um, I've got the a man. I'm sure you, can, you played catch when you were a kid. You remember, remember when I was just introducing Sautrantika and saying, look, Sautrantika is anything that is causally efficacious, exists by its own nature. It doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter the conceptual framework. It, and I started banging my head for something, the cell phone or something, but showing, look, it has causal efficacy. It's absolutely there. It's real. And I can perceive it, right? And I like to do this. So we're just going to play catch with this. So, but now watch here. Clear? Nothing up my sleeves. Okay, you ready, Miles? I'm going to throw it to you. Okay, ready? Okay, toss it back. Wow, that was cool. Did you, did you not see an inherently existent eyeglass case flying through the air? That is, if we all died and all of us went completely, com you know, it would still be flying through the air. I mean, I throw it and we all die. And it still plunk and lands into his lifeless corpse. <laughs> you know? But, right, it's, it's got to be absolutely there. Whatever you call it, whatever color it happened, you happen to see it as, but there's got to be something absolutely rare. I mean, we threw it across the room, right? And doesn't that prove metaphysical realism, that we all saw it, and it hit his hand, we heard the sound, hit my hand, we heard the sound. Doesn't it have to absolutely be there, independently of conceptual designation? Aren't the Sautrantikas right? And it has causal efficacy, unlike the fact that this is mine. Well, that doesn't do anything at all. That's just whatever. We agreed. But we don't need to agree on this. You can think this is made of jello, and I throw it at you. It's not made of jello. You discover, no, it's hard, right? So doesn't that disprove Madhyamaka and prove Sautrantika? And my answer is, imagine right now that you're dreaming. Just a thought experiment. Imagine right now you're dreaming. Okay? You're dreaming. Uh, Miles, here comes a, here comes a case. Yeah, it made just, the sound, just the sound I expected it would. Yeah, just the sound I expected it would. In a dream, you'd see it just like that. And then if I started going like this, it would do just that. And it would feel just like that. Just like you, you had some sensation, earth element, right there, didn't you? And we're dreaming. Imagine that you're lucid. It would still be the same. You still see the eyeglass carrier flying through space, making the now. You're seeing causality. I say, Miles, would you catch this? And he's, he knows I'm not threatening him or anything. So he says, yes. And so we play catch with it. And there's causality. It made just the noise you expected. And like that. Causality is all working. But in the dream, is there anything here from its own side? Zero. And yet, still makes the noise, and so forth and so on. So that should make us pause. That we were fooled in the dream, lucid, lucid in a non-lucid dream, we're totally fooled, because we think it's really a material eyeglass carrier traveling through space. But even when you're lucid in the dream, it still looks that way. That's why even after you've realized emptiness, things still appear as if they're inherently existent, appear as if they're really from their own side. Okay? So likewise with the body. Now we come to the 
the body of matter in the universe that, frankly, on the whole, we care most about. And that our, and our reification is so intense because it's not just an eyeglass carrier where I can say, okay, Miles, do you want it? Okay, it's yours. And he said, sure, I can use it, whatever. And he takes it. So that's easy. And eyeglasses and computers and clothing and so forth. But if I say, Miles, you got a pretty good body there, a lot younger than mine anyway, um, how about we, uh, you know, swap? I'll give you mine, you give me yours. And, and I'll throw in... I'll throw in an iPhone. <laughs> that one we can't do, right? Even if we wanted to, and I'm sure you would need a lot more than an iPhone as a sweetener. This one's we're stuck with. This is the one body of matter in the universe. We're really stuck with it, right? And it seems to be really there really there. I mean, absolutely. So let's see what Shantideva has to say about that. This is from the Bodhicharavatara. It's a translation that my wife and I did. She's an outstanding scholar of Sanskrit as well as Buddhism, and I translated from the Tibetan. We're going right to the ninth chapter, and we're going to verse 78, and I will make, and I've translated within the wisdom chapter, just those verses from 78 to, people listening by, by podcast, to 105. Chapter 9, 78 to 105, those are the verses in Shantideva's wisdom chapter of A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life that directly address the four applications of mindfulness from a Madhyamaka perspective. Okay? So now we're going into the big leagues. We did the classical approach, the Satrantika, we did the Theravada, we did the Pali Canon. Now we're going into perfection of wisdom. Because that's where, lo and behold, quite interesting, in the Inter-Tibetan tradition, in the Sanskrit-based text, attributed to the Buddha, the, the most explicit teachings, oddly enough, or interestingly enough, on the four applications of mindfulness are found in the Prachyaparamita, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. There's a great big two-and-a-half-volume sutra called the Sutra of the, of, the, of the Applications of Mindfulness, Close Applications of Mindfulness. When I left, left the Buddhist Buddha Dialectics in 1974, I just wanted to practice this. So I said, well, I'm going to read that sutra. There's almost nothing on this practice in that whole sutra with about, I don't know, a thousand pages. It's quite remarkable. I was quite surprised. It's all about the six realms of existence and karma and a lot of very interesting things dealing with the Buddhist worldview and all of that. And there were hardly any references to the four applications of mindfulness. It's very interesting. But you do find it in the perfection of wisdom. And then you find it in the, in the Indian commentarial tradition, in the Shravagabhumi References there. In other Indian classics, you find it there. And then you find it here in Shantideva, both in his Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, as well as his Sikchusamujaya, his Compendium of Practices. And he elaborates these four applications of mindfulness in greater length there. Here's the more concise version. Let's jump right in. So now this is the Madhyamaka close application of mindfulness. Close application of mindfulness always means with discerning intelligence. With wisdom, you're not just practicing bare attention. That's not, yeah, bare, confining yourself to bare attention is not the Pali Canon, it's not Theravada, it's not anything else. It's only late 20th, 20th, 20th century Buddhism that's been popularized and, I have to say it, dumbed down. Okay, now we're brightening up and bringing it all, up, all the way up to the Madhyamaka level. So let's read. So what's the nature of this body as we're closely attending to it? This body... 
that is there when we're not perceiving it. So it's that question. This may, I, I may have to linger a little bit because I think setting this up is awfully important. I won't go for an hour and a half, maybe another 15 minutes. I've just gone for a half an hour. Um, the question here is, all right, the appearances that are rising in the substrate and they're not inherently existent, they're not really there, they're appearing out of the space of the aliyah. That's already empty. So, okay, case closed. It's kind of obvious. And a lot of neuroscientists would accept that. You know, the appearances aren't, you know, they don't travel through space and so forth and so on. But again, there's a body. There's a body. The body came from the, the egg and the sperm of your parents. And they're from, you know, it's got a history to it, right? And, and it eats food made out of molecules and all of that. It's located in physical space. So when you are not looking, what's there when we're not looking? Because when we're looking, then we have all these appearances arising in our substrate. But there's something there when we're not looking. What's that? That's the question scientists have been asking for at least 400 years. What's there when we're not looking? And they're assuming there's an absolute perspective, God's perspective. It's very interesting in Stephen Hawking's, his own evolution. About 25 years ago, he wrote his bestseller, Short History of Time. Isn't that the title? Short History of Time? Or The Universe? Brief, Brief History of Time, isn't it? Brief History of Time. Big, big bestseller. And, of course, he's an outstanding scientist. But he left open at that time. He, had, he was still hoping that there would be a grand unified theory. He was banking on that that was still a possibility, and that is the union of general relativity and quantum mechanics. Never been done. But he was hoping that they could be actually, that physicists, when they get clever enough, they learn enough, they'll come up with one theory that covers all the other theories, the grand unified theory. And there would be one theory that accounts for everything, right? And everything would have its place, and everything would fit. And so at that time when he wrote that, he said, and you know, there is a possibility of God, a singular God who created the whole shebang, that triggered the Big, big Bang and all of that. So he held both of these together. There may be a God, there may be a role for that, and we're aspiring for a grand unified theory, one theory that covers everything. Now, just about maybe two years ago now, he published this book, I think it's called The Grand Design, and he shifted on both accounts. He's given up the notion that there's ever going to be a grand unified theory, and he's given up on the notion that there, that there could be a God, one God that created the one universe, because he's taking quantum mechanics really seriously now. As, as I explained yesterday, and what we have is these multiverses, a different system of measurement and a conceptual framework, and a universe rises relative to that, which is true relative to that. Another system of measurement, set of questions, conceptual framework, another universe rises relative to that, and another and another. So no one universe and no one grand theory that brings them all together. In other words, all relative, ontological relativity, which there's no place for God because we are co-creating our universe. And we're cultivating multiple ones with systems of measurement and conceptual framework to make sense of the information. So that's a big shift, uh, much closer to Buddhism. Because Buddhism has been, been saying all along, there is no outside creator. There's one phrase, it's from the Abhidhamma, it's very easy to memorize. You, it, sounds, it sounds cute. Jikten lala lele jung. Jikten lala lele jung. The multiple worlds, lala means multiple. The multiple worlds... Lele jung, arise from karma. I won't elaborate on that. That would take up the whole hour. But the multiple worlds, and that karma is playing, in, is, is playing a role in arousing, generating the appearances. And then we, in the present moment, are making measurements and making sense of it, in which case, in that regard, 
we are co-creators both ways, because it's our karma from past lives, but also our activities in this life. By the, the, the types of measurement, in other words, what are you attending to with your six senses? What are you attending to with your instruments of technology? What are you attending to, and how do you make sense of it? How are you attending to it? Right? Big important. Not just attending to it, how are you attending to it? So, and then independence upon that, reality rises up to meet you. But it's a reality that you co-created, both in the long term in terms of karma, that's clearly Buddhist belief. I'm not saying it's not true, I actually believe it. But what we can see empirically, and what John Wheeler's getting at, is how we're co-creating it right here and now by the measurements we're performing now and the way we make sense of that information. So, that was an interesting point. Back to the body. So, but the, qu- the question is then, what's there when we're not looking? Scientists have been working on metaphysical realism based in the Bible for the first 300 years of science, now no longer based in the Bible, but still a lot of inertia. I mean, most scientists, most physicists for that matter, I think are still metaphysical realists. They're really out there, especially the experimentalists, feeling, you know, it must have been already out there. And so metaphysical realism, we're simply discovering what's absolutely out there. But we come back to Buddhism. When we're not perceiving the body, what's there? And how do we talk about that, that it does exist, even when not looking at it, without then falling to the other extreme, that it exists inherently, absolutely, objectively, by its own inherent nature? Okay, finally, Shantideva. So we're trying to identify what's the nature of this body as we closely apply mindfulness to it with discerning intelligence, with some of the working hypotheses that will come from the Madhyamaka view, so he starts, and this is ever so familiar refrain that you find in the Pali Canon itself in the Buddhist discourse on the four applications of mindfulness, namely the body, something very similar, if not very similar to what I'm about to read. The body, the body, conceive of it. I mean, do conceive of it. I don't need to tell you how. You already have a conception of body, your body. So hold that in mind. That body that you're quite persuaded is really there. It's really there. When you blink, when you're not looking, nobody's looking, whatever, it's really there in physical space made of atoms that are physical and they're material and it's there. Hold that. This is classic Tsongkhaba. Classic Tsongkhaba. Think of the body, that real body. Hold it in mind. And now as you're holding it in mind like a specimen in a, in a test tube, Now let's investigate, okay, what's the nature of this body that's there when you're not looking? Well, for starters, the body is not the feet. I think we don't have to debate that one. Otherwise, just for starters, Miles has two bodies. That's not fair. He's already got one body better than mine. Why should he have two bodies better than mine? And both of them look like feet, so I guess they're not that much better. (laughs) So a foot is not a body. We're talking about a human body here, right? The body is not the feet. Starters. Okay, good start, yeah? The calves, nor the thighs, nor is the body the hips, the abdomen, the back, the chest, or the arms. It is not the hands, the size of the torso, or the armpits, nor is it characterized by the shoulders, that shoulder is not the body, nor is the body the neck or the head. So we went bottom up. From the feet to the head, we looked at all the parts. That pretty well covered it in large chunks, like, torso, like abdomen and so forth. And none of those parts are the body. 
then what here is the body? That is, if there's something here that is truly the body, inherently by its own nature, really there, independent not only of perception, but independent of conceptualization, what here is the body? Because when we think of the body as we're reifying it, the body's one entity, and it has a lot of characteristics. Some bodies are tall, some are fat, skinny, short, with hair, without hair, and so forth and so on. Female bodies with certain qualities, and male bodies with certain other qualities, and so forth. So there's the body. It has a lot of qualities, but it's one entity. And it's quite discreet. I mean, you can see its borders. You could put it into deep space and say, yeah, it's a body. Just floating there lifelessly in space. But that is a body. The contours are very clear. And it seems like, it. boy, that's absolutely there, just like this eyeglass case. It was traveling through space all by itself. Right? So what is that one thing? Because you think you have one body, that's for sure. You don't think you have two bodies or more. So that what here is the body? It should be identical to something you can actually identify. If this body partially exists in all of these, in all of these parts, and its parts exist in their parts, that is, the hand exists in the fingers, and the fingers exist in the knuckles, and the knuckles exist in the, you know, right down to the elementary particle level. If the body partially exists in all of this, so it's my body is partly in my right arm, and my body is partly here, and then the, the, the forearm partly exists in the skin, and the bone, and the marrow, and so forth. Uh, where does the body, where does it stand by itself? If it partially exists in each of the parts, where is this entity that partially exists here and partially exists there? Where does it exist? If you're saying just part of it exists here, well then where does it exist? The, you know, the entirety, the real thing, the one thing, the body. He's leaving that as a question to investigate. If the body were located in its entirety, since it doesn't exist entirely, so if the body were located in its entirety in the hands and the other limbs, then there would be just as many bodies as there are hands and limbs. So then you'd have four bodies, obviously. Well, okay, that's not going to work. The body is neither, so this body, the body is neither inside nor outside. If you say the body is inside, that means you have two bodies, the body and then the body inside the body. If you say the body is outside the parts, then where is it? So you look inside there, you don't see a body. You see liver and internal organs and all of that. You don't see a body in there. You don't find the body anywhere else. So the body is neither inside nor outside. How can the body be in the hands and other limbs? I mean, what more to the hand is there, apart from the hand? Is there something else in there? Oh, yeah, there's a body in there, too. Or there's a part of a body in there, too. No, it's just a hand. A hand is a hand. It's called a hand. It's not called a body. It is not separate from the hands and the like. And that is if you, if you as a thought experiment, or as in the practice of chu, if you mentally then chopped up the body. So you see, chop off the hands, or maybe chop off the hands last. Uh, <laughs> you'll need them for a while, you know. So chop off your legs, that's an easy one. And chop off your, your abdomen, and chop off your head, that's a good one. And then chop off chop off this and chop, and chop, and you have two suspended arms floating in space, and I'll chop off your, and then you chop off mine. They just have all these parts, and then you throw them in all different directions. You say, okay, we got, all, all, we got rid of all the parts of the body, and now all that should be left would be the body that had all those parts. Like the Cheshire cat, who remains, whose, only, whose smile remains when the Cheshire cat has left the stage. You know, 
There should be just the body. We left the parts behind, but now you just get the body. You know? That should be the case. But where's that body that somehow exists apart from the parts? But it's not found among the parts either. So how can it be found? So it is not separate from the hands and the like, and yet it's not in there, not in its entirety. That is, a hand isn't a body. But if you say that the, the body is partially in the hand, why are you saying that? What is this body that is partially there? Thus he says, thus the body does not exist. And what's he getting at here? We're holding on to, as I think we're, here's a point from Buddhism, we're all born as metaphysical realists. You have to learn not to be, but you're born with that. It's innate, it's conate, you're born with it, of reifying everything you touch. Reifying your emotions, your body, the external universe, your mama, and everything else. That's an innate act of delusion that we're born with, right? And so when we say, and pretty much when a scientist says or anybody else says, something exists, there are Galileo looking through his telescope and he says, there are moons around Jupiter. What he's saying, and he was a metaphysical realist, he's saying, look, they were already there before I looked, which means they're absolutely there. And whether I, whether I look, whether I call them moons, I call them meteorites, or I call them dwarf planets, whatever I call them, it doesn't really matter. They're absolutely out there. Absolutely inherently out there. Right? We're born with that. And likewise for the body. So this is a very deeply ingrained. So for the metaphysical realist, if you're equating existence with real existence, inherent existence, which pretty much we do, then if, so, then if you demonstrate that something is not inherently existent, the answer will be, well, then you mean it's not there. Because if it were there, it would be inherently existent. I mean, that's, that's what it means to exist. It's really there. It's, I mean, it's really there, waiting to be discovered from its own side. That's what it means to exist. It's really there. This, the fact that these eyeglasses are mine, that's just a convention. We all know that. But the eyeglasses, by whatever name, that's either really there or it's just not there at all. For the metaphysical realist, there's an equation of true existence with existence. So then he's just going to follow that line. Okay, if this is what you believe, the body does not... He, and he puts... And this is unlike Tsongkhava, a lot of the very refined thinkers of the, of the Madhyamaka view. He doesn't put any qualifier here. He says, thus, then the body does not exist. What he's saying, of course, is the body doesn't inherently exist. But he doesn't say that. He just says the body doesn't exist. If you think existence means an absolute existence, then the body doesn't exist. Looks like he's fallen into nihilism. But of course, as a Madhyamak, he's not going to do that. Well, this happens a lot in modernity. Right? That's not real. That's, that, that doesn't, that's not real. Something, whatever it is. That's not real. Have you ever heard this one before? That's not real. It's only in your mind. If it's real, it would be really there, independently of your mind. But if it's just your mind, then it's not real. Right? Take that to an extreme. All of your subjective experience isn't real. Only the brain is real. And that's called eliminative materialism. And there are people who are not insane who believe that and actually get awards for be believing it. Quite remarkable. Okay. Thus, the body does not exist. However, on account of delusion, but 
You're lucid in a dream. You're lucid in a dream. And somebody comes to you, and they're giving every appearance of not being lucid. And they ask you, this eyeglass case that you're holding in your hand, is it there? Is there, is, is there really an eyeglass carry, carry, case in your hand? And you're lucid. And they're asking you. And of course, they're asking you, being non-lucid, when they're asking you, is there an eyeglass case in the hand? They're meaning, is there something really there? And what's your answer going to be if you're lucid? No. There's an appearance. This is an appearance. That's an appearance of tactile sensations. This is an appearance. It's called blue. This is an appearance. It makes noise. They're all appearances, but the appearances are totally empty. And the answer is, no, there is no eyeglass carrier. Because I'm not here and you're not here. With respect to emptiness, nothing's there. With respect to emptiness, the body does not exist. When you are lucid, you see, no, it's, it's really not there. However, on account of delusion, that is being non-lucid, there is the impression of the body with regard to the hands and the light because of their specific configuration. So when all of these parts are in a certain configuration, then we say, oh, that's a body. Just as there is the impression of a person with regard to a pillar, or it's like a scarecrow, you can put something in the shape of a person, and then it looks like there's really a person there, but it's merely an appearance. There is no person there. As long as, the, as a collection of conditions lasts, these cooperative conditions, these conditions here, the body appears like a person. As long as a collection of conditions lasts. But how long is that? How many parts do you need for there to still be a body here? Okay, a thought experiment again. Whoops, I just lost my two hands. Whoops, lost both of my, both of my arms. Whoops, I just became an amputee. Whoops. How many parts can you lose and still say there's a body here? I'll give you a really touching example. Not many years ago, I was watching a, it was a news, it was news, and there was a big fire up in California, up in the, up in the mountains, and somebody's, and somebody's house just burned down. I mean, absolutely burned down. There was just the, the stone chimney left. And everything else was just, there was just ashes. And the owners came back. And they said, oh, my house, my house is really damaged. <laughs> they looked at this and said, my house. Okay, do we need to destroy the chimney? I mean, how much of this do we need to destroy? <laughs> do we need to take away the rocks? Do we need to take away the soot? I mean, when are you going to release the conceptual designation, my house was severely damaged? Um, most people just see a pile of stones. And you are still designating that as a severely damaged house. <laughs> which is definitely worth repairing. <laughs> you know? So that for them was a house. And they're not wrong. Nobody laughed at them. And we're not laughing at them now. It's just like, whoa. It's a house as soon as you say it's a house. And it's not a house as soon as you say it's not a house. Okay, we've just touched it. We've just touched it. I think I'm probably going to stop. It's, I find it so fascinating. Okay, that's where we stop, yeah. So Because he's going to continue on. It gets really interesting. We'll go there tomorrow. But we start with the body, the close application of mindfulness of the body. And, what I, and now we go to meditation. Try to turn this into meditation and not just a head trip, something, you know, some intellectual curiosity for entertainment. And go into the body, closely apply mindfulness of the body, but now not just to the bare sensations. You know what you're going to find there. As, as Elizabeth said, you go in there and what do you find? Space. When it's bare attention, 
But then, do you still think you have a liver and a spleen and a backbone and knees and so forth and so on, even when you go there? So let's jump in and see if we can turn this into meditation. Beginning of Shantideva's presentation of the same material in his other text, the Compendium of Practices, there's a line missing in this text. And that line is, having made one's mind serviceable in that way, one now begins to attend to the body. Having made the mind serviceable in that way, he's referring to the preceding chapter that was all about shamatha. So now, even if we don't achieve shamatha in a couple of minutes, we do our best to approximate that, make the mind serviceable by settling body, speech, and mind in their natural states, bringing forth the qualities, qualities of relaxation, stillness, and vividness. Get the rumination to calm down with mindfulness of breathing. Now we return to this insider's view of the one body of matter, the one physical entity that we can view from the inside and the outside. We can observe other people's bodies. If you're a medical doctor, you may, you may observe their internal organs. A neurophysiologist look at their individual neurons. We can look at the body from the outside 
and we can look at it from the inside. We have a three-dimensional view. For all other objects, we look only from the outside. So let's take advantage of this privileged perspective of attending closely applying mindfulness to the body from the outside in and the inside out. And as we do so, as we attend to this physical entity with which we're so intimately familiar and so strongly identified, bring to mind now what do you think is there when you're not looking? Because clearly something is there. Even if you fainted, you're comatose. Even if you die, and your body is in a grave, there's something there. There's one body in that casket. But now it's alive. Bring to mind what is your sense. What comes to mind when you think, my body, the real one, that's composed of atoms, made of matter, occupies physical space, what comes to mind? Now, using your intelligence and your imagination, imagine Ashantideva just guided us. Closely apply your mindfulness to the individual parts of your body, starting with the feet. you focus there. Do you think, yes, I found my body. This is it. Or are the feet just feet? We are now practicing the close application of mindfulness to the body as the Buddha himself taught in the Satipatthana Sutta. Part by part. As Shantideva guides us, let's go from the bottom to the top. Do it deliberately. Consciously. Using your powers of imagination. You know your body has these parts. Bones, flesh, blood, veins. Move right through. From the feet to the calves, if you found the body. To the thighs. Is this the body? Compare your notion of the body, what you think your body is, 
And now compare that to a thigh. Have you found the body? Hips. Abdomen, is this a body? With its intestines, large, small. Your stomach, your liver, spleen, gallbladder. Your chest, with the skin covering, blood veins, the lungs, the heart, the flesh. Is this a body? One arm, the upper arm, the forearm, the hands. Have you found the body yet? back, from the hips up to the base of the neck. Is that a body? Is that your body? The neck. And then the whole head. Is that a body or is it just a head? Now it's very easy to conclude, no, no, none of those parts are the body, of course not. The body is the whole, it's the whole configuration the whole kit, the whole system. That's, that's my body. One body having many parts. It's the entirety. But now, is there such thing as a headless body? Could you imagine, is that still your body if you had no head? Wouldn't you call that a headless body? There are people with no legs. We don't say they have no body. Double amputees. No arms? They can still be a body, can't they? A corpse with all the vital organs taken out, as in an autopsy. That's the body, but without its internal organs.
So exactly how much needs to be there? For you to say, yes, that's a body. body has all these parts. But where exactly is that body that has the parts? And part by part, how many can you take away until the very notion of the body that has the parts vanishes into thin air. You say, oh, there's no body there. Sometimes when people's bodies are cremated put, and the ashes are put in a jar, don't we say, this is the person's body. We're going to bury it now. Or spread this person over the sea. Does your body even need to be in its present configuration? What about an incinerated body? about a, a body decomposing in a, in, a, in a tomb for years and decades. Don't we still say that person's body is lying there in the grave? Let's place some flowers to show our respect. When maybe it's just the powder of bones. Is that a body? A mother's egg, the ovum, is that a human body? Or how about the sperm all by itself? How about the sperm that's inserted into the ovum? Is that now a human body? Where did it come from? There was just the ovum and the sperm, and now they're unified. And we say a new entity has come into existence? There isn't. It's just the ovum and the sperm. Where'd this body come from? If you think that's a body. Or is that simply a fertilized egg? 
not a human body, just a fertilized egg. Very, very different. But now imagine, thanks to modern technology, we've seen a lot of images of the process of the embryonic development in the womb. When do you say, oh, that's a human body? Why then? Why not a day before? Why not a week before? Did a body really come into existence at some point? If so, where did it come from? From outside? Or did something that wasn't a body suddenly become a body, objectively, from its own side? How does that happen? As you hold in mind your sense of a real body, a real human body, objectively inherently existent, really there from its own side, consider from the time of the sperm heading towards the egg and their union, there is no time when that body objectively, inherently comes into existence, that something that wasn't a human body suddenly becomes a real human body. There's a total emptiness of the objective origination of that body. There was no time in which it objectively came into existence. Likewise, from the time that there's a, a living human body and then a dead human body, which gradually decomposes, there is no point in time when an objectively existent human body, a dead one, ceases to exist. A point at which you can say there's no longer a body there. There is no moment in time objectively speaking. The cessation of the body is empty. It never takes place. The origination of the body is empty. It never takes place. And that which is without origination and without cessation 
doesn't exist. does exist only as a matter of convention, as in a dream. It appears it's causally efficacious, the body. Things happen to it, and it influences other things, as in a dream. It's not really there from its own side. For it never came into existence and never goes out of existence. Rest in the emptiness of your own body. Nowhere to be found from its own side. Not really there.
Olaf. Some interesting questions here. I'll try to answer a bit of our mail in the last 15 minutes. Interesting one from Steph. It's the later one, but I'm going to go ahead and answer it first. Uh, if it is your psyche, this is from Steph. If it, if it is your psyche that is individually configured, unique, and our substrate consciousness is blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual, regardless of genetic, cultural background, does this mean that if two people are resting in awareness of awareness, actually accessing their substrate consciousness, they will be fundamentally having the same experience, bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. Would this also be true when we are best approximating the substrate? We're all trying to experience something that is exactly the same. Is that right? So the space of my mind, the substrate, is the same as the space of your mind? It's a very interesting question. I'll, I'll do my best to answer it. First answer is yes or no. The yes part is, I, I give one of my favorite examples, and that is, they say, scientists say that every snowflake is, in, is unique. Remember heard that one? Um, but then if you melt any of those unique snow, snowflakes and, you, and they just turn into a drop of water, one drop of water is an awful lot like every other drop of water, right? Let alone when you go down to the molecular level and it's H2O molecule by molecule, Boy, one H2O molecule looks an awful lot like another H2O molecule, right? And so in a similar fashion, your psyche, absolute unique. In the whole universe, you, you have the only one. It was um, trademarked, you know, in the beginning. Uh, that's it, absolutely unique. I think we can be very confident of that. It's not an exaggeration. But then when your psyche, your coarse mind, when it melts into that crystallization of your, of your psyche, arising in dependence upon your unique body, your unique brain, your unique genetic constitution, and your unique, I'll speak as a Buddhist, your unique, unique karmic inflow, um, when that melts into the substrate consciousness, then you experience H2O, bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality, which is pretty much, you know, it's, it's the same. It's just the, the salient characteristics of the same substrate consciousness. So in that regard, yes. You don't get a female bliss, luminosity. You don't get male and it's not human, not human. It's not Asian versus African or what have you. It's, so it's not qualified by any of those things. But is it the same? You say fundamentally the same. Well, one could be you know, asked what you mean by fundamentally. But I'll now address the ways it's not the same. And it's get interesting. <coughs> Let's imagine that Steph and I both achieve shamatha. So she's abiding in her substrate consciousness. I'm abiding in mine. But let's imagine I'm, by temperament, what shall I say? I'm especially drawn to eeny, meeny, miny, mo, uh, serenity, non-conceptuality. I like the bliss. Who doesn't? I like, the no I like the luminosity. But if I had to choose, this is the one I gravitate to. This is where the tendrils of grasping and clinging go. I this is a keeper. I, I, just, I find it really hard to come out of shamatha because I just don't want to lose that wonderful serenity, that, that serenity that surpasses the conceptual understanding of just resting in quiescence, non-conceptual peace, stillness. It's so safe, it's so secure, and I've always been looking for a refuge, and I found it. If you took away the bliss and luminosity, I can live with that, but give me the peace. Okay? Whereas, but on Steph, on the other hand, she says, old man, you can keep your peace. I'm a young lady here, and I want the bliss. I really, you know, my life isn't over like yours. <laughs> you know. I want some bliss here. You can have your serenity. If I had to give away serenity, I can do it. But, oh, man, do I like this bliss. 
And then other ones, you know, luminosity. So that's individual. It's individual. Some will gravitate to, cling to, be more attached to, some the bliss, some luminosity, some non-conceptuality. Some may be a combo of the two. Some may be equally attached to all three. So there's individuality there. There's something that is in the bliss. The bliss is bliss, luminosity, luminosity, non-conceptuality, non-conceptuality. It doesn't come in multiple flavors. But the way you're experiencing it, oh yes, because you're experiencing it with your subtle mind. And your subtle mind isn't just an anonymous, orphaned, unconfigured continuum of consciousness. Oh, it's loaded. It's like loaded dye. It's got all that configuration from past lives coming in. Right? So then some will be more inclined to one or another. That will give unique quality to it, or at least it will not make it the same as everybody else's. Right? The way you're experiencing it. Because you are bringing, let alone genetic predisposition, but just consider. I mean, Buddhist perspective, of course. What else are we going to do here? This, we can't talk about this scientifically because they don't know anything about this. But you're bringing, it, this, this is the continuum that comes from your past lives. That is massively configured. Massively. With memories, inclinations, virtues, vices, and so forth and so on. It's loaded. And that is the continuum that's experiencing now in this neutral mode. When you put it out of forward gear and, 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 neutral, and, and reverse gear, you're just resting and idling. Not activating your substrate consciousness. Bear in mind, once you've achieved shamatha, you can arouse it with coarse investigation, with subtle analysis. You can direct it to the past. You can reveal memories from the past, maybe explore past life memories. That would be interesting. But the memories you pick up are going to be yours and nobody else's. And likewise, the, the memories you pick up in between. So that's going to be individuated. But there's another point too, and this is straight from a sangha. And that is when you're just resting there, having achieved shamatha. And he talks about achieving this by way of focusing on a, a Buddha image. Tsongkhapa cites him in this regard. Let's imagine you focus on a Buddha image, you achieve shamatha, there it is, radiant, three-dimensional, really high definition. You've achieved shamatha, well then, thank you, you've served your purpose, I, you're an image after all, I'm not abandoning the Buddha, but I'm going to release this image now because I have other things to do. And you release that image. You can, why not? What are you left with? Where the image was, what are you left with now? Exactly, the substrate, right? So there you are, now you're resting, let's keep it the, the, the kind of gulupa terminology. You're resting now in that subtle continuum of mental consciousness and you're aware of just this vacuity, which in Dzogchen they call the, the substrate, the alaya. But it's not quite that simple. Even while you're just resting, not doing anything, activating anything, you're just resting. It's not quite that simple. Because the Sangha points out, is this totally non-conceptual? Well, for starters, no, it's not. That's why, writing on subtle conceptualization, we prefer this versus that. That's already indicating something that is configured on an implicit or subliminal level. It's not chit-chat, but it is a subtle configuration. right? But there's more than that. He said, as you have achieved, having achieved shamatha, you're just resting there, little bubbles of concepts will come up. It's not totally non-conceptual. A little thought will bubble up, just like a little bubble in an aquarium. Goes blub, 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 blub. There's no excitation at all. Zero. Because you're not perturbed, you're not agitated, you're not distracted. Your awareness isn't moving. But still, little concepts are coming up, bubbling up. So if we th thought of a physics analogy, which I love, of course, this is not absolute zero Kelvin. It's not a total, you have not totally cooled down. 
there's still like, it's like deep space, okay, three, three degrees Kelvin. There's, there's still a few atoms there. They're loosely, loose, loose population. But likewise, this is not absolutely non-conceptual. Even in terms of little thoughts coming up. Yeah, they come up. They just don't, they don't create a ripple. So those thoughts, whose thoughts are they going to be? They're going to be your thoughts, not somebody else's thoughts. So those two will be unique. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Right? Now, if we go beyond that, non-conceptual, non-dual, unmediated realization of emptiness. Okay? Sutriana path. This is totally non-conceptual. They say totally non-conceptual. Not the approximation that we have in shamatha. So now if Natu and anybody else here, Graham, both of them now just become Arya Bodhisattvas. Direct non-conceptual realization of emptiness. Are they having exactly the same experience? Right down to the minutiae. Is it absolute duplicate? No difference whatsoever. Explicit my not knowing what I'm talking about, I would say explicitly yes. Explicitly. What do you experience? Is her experience, it doesn't matter that she's who she is and that grandma's who he is. No, it doesn't matter at all. It's totally non-conceptual. So whatever you brought to it in terms of the conceptualization, your karma and so forth, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Explicitly, into what, you, what, what, can you, what was your experience? When you come out of it, try to talk about it a little bit. You know, say something. Would they have anything different to say? Even if they could, you know, the answer is no. I don't think so. Explicitly, no. Implicitly, is there any difference whatsoever on any level? The answer has to be yes. Yes. The direct realization, the direct realization of emptiness of an Arya Bodhisattva on the first Bhumi, the first Arya Bodhisattva level, and the second and the third, up to the eighth Bhumi, the pure Bhumi, where there's a freedom of mental afflictions, up, up into the, and then the, so the eighth, ninth, tenth, the pure, the pure Bhumis. You're realizing emptiness with what's called the subtle mind. You're realizing emptiness with subtle mind. But Natu's subtle mind is different than Graham's subtle mind. They're not the same. So even though explicitly my suspicion, my intuition would be the realization is the same. The mind with which you're realizing it is somewhat different. Graham's subtle continuum, again, that's the one that comes from lifetime to lifetime, it's not the same as Natu's. Therefore, implicitly on some level, maybe it's entirely unconscious, but on some level it's not the same. Right? Now let's go beyond that. So I'm extending your question way beyond, like an accordion. Okay. Chudun and Tracy both become vidyadatas. Non-conceptual, unmediated, absolutely non-dual realization of rikpa. From what dimension of consciousness do you realize rikpa, Chuduna? From what dimension of consciousness? What is the awareness that's realizing rikpa as you have become a vidyadatta? Pristine awareness, yeah, Rikpa realizes Rikpa. Nothing else realizes Rikpa. Not non-conceptually and so forth in all these ways. That's it. It's a total, it's a total non-duality. So only in, as a Vidya Dada, it's Rikpa realizing its own nature. Rikpa realizing Rikpa, right? So Rikpa realizing Rikpa. Reali- Rikpa realizing Rikpa. You've gone beyond the unique configuration of your subtle mind. 
beyond that. You're realizing Rigpa from out of time, from the fourth time, because that's where Rigpa is. Out of time, out of space, beyond individuation, beyond all conceptual frameworks. That's the only way a Vijayadhara realizes Rigpa. So on that level, once you have a non-unmediated, non-conceptual, non-dual realization of Rigpa as the Vijayadhara, is Tracy's experience any way different from Chudun's experience? I don't see how it could be. I don't see any basis for saying there's any difference whatsoever. Any more than, for example, Moggallanaputta. Did Moggallanaputta, when he died, did he terminate? Did he become non-existent? Like the, he- the, like the, the, the horns on a rabbit's head. No existence whatsoever. The answer is no. Is he still there? Moggallana is still there? Hello, Moggallana, you know, with your five skandhas, you're, you're, you still there? No. Mahayana perspective? There's still experience. Experience of nirvana. Experience of immutable bliss. Experience of emptiness. Mogalyana's Putra's experience following his death, Shariputra's experience following his death. Is there any difference at all? I don't see how there could be. I don't see how there could be. Because the Buddha was so explicit, the continuum of their five skandhas terminated. Finito. But they have not become non-existent. So, there's a real quick one. We can do one more. Okay, let's do, see if we can do it. And this is from Jim. Jim over. Jim, Jim, Jim. Oh, you go, left side? Oh, yeah, way over there. Okay, you, you move around. Okay. In yesterday's afternoon session, you described Rikpa as a point of view outside of the system, outside of time and space. That's what I meant by the system. You betcha. Does this make Rikpa equivalent to the God's eye view? Very good question. And it all depends on how do you define God? That's a really good question, because to think that even Christians have one definition is just to be ignorant. It's just not true. I mean, there are goofy notions that God has a beard and all of that. Maybe there are some people who believe that. Up in heaven, surrounded by, you know, all that. Maybe there are some people that believe in that cartoon. They must really love Bugs Bunny, too. If you like cartoons, why not other, other cartoons? Uh, but there's a wide variety. So I looked into this. I'm no, absolutely no expert on this, but I really... When I was doing the research, and then eventually the writing for my book, Mind in the Balance, it was just like an ongoing celebration. It was just, I just reveled in it to see the depths of insights from some of these great Christian contemplatives. And I'm referring especially to the Neoplatonic tradition. It starts in the 8th century from John Scotus Eriugena, who's actually Irishman. That's the 8th century, and then the last great one that I'm aware of, but I'm sure there are later ones. It's just my limitation, that I've really, I put it this way. The last great one that I've studied was from the 15th century, and that was Nicholas of Cusa. And he is a, Catholic, a, a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church, personal emissary of the Pope. Boy, I've read their descriptions of the deepest experience. Man, it looks like Dzogchen. But their experience is when they're expressing it. Of course, they didn't stop becoming Christian or stop believing in God. It's the last thing they would do. 
But now, when they are speaking about God that they've experienced, it looks a lot like Rikpa to me. So that's an open question, obviously. It would be ridiculous for me to think, oh, I found the right answer, that's the right answer, remember it. You know? But it is an, an empirical fact. I speak as a religious, religious study scholar. Uh, there's a, there's a, what's the History of God. Very good book, History of God. Anybody remember the author? Say again? Karen Armstrong, outstanding scholar. She's a highly respected scholar. The History of God. That's a nice place to start. First-rate scholarship goes back, and of course, History of God really in the Abrahamic tradition. I don't think she steps outside of that. But back to what the Christians call the Old Testament, right through the New Testament, and then right on through. I don't think she stops there. And carries on through the apostolic tradition, the evolution of Christianity. And say, whoa, the history of God. Okay, Stephen Hawking talked about the history of the universe. She talked about the history of God, that there have been many, many visions. And so, then it, so there's my answer. It depends on how you define it. Might one say, yes, that's a God's eye view? Sure. You've simply defined God as Rikpa. And does somebody say you can't do that? Where's the language police, you know? Also, does this mean that from Rikpa's perspective, my choices are already made implying a deterministic universe? The answer is absolutely not. That one I can be unequivocal. The Buddha himself said, no. But in some, so absolutely not. Um, but that would take more elaboration. And finally, I don't think words will suffice. I really think not. Because we're venturing into a realm, as soon as we start talking about the realm of Rikpa, we have to recognize that Rikpa is simply beyond all conceptual elaborations. The actual nature of Rikpa, pristine awareness, is beyond all conceptual elaborations. That is, whatever you think about it, your thought will not, will not have captured it. It doesn't matter what you think. You can think for a million years, nonstop, one ongoing flow of rumination about Rikpa. And it will never, if, if, if the Rikpa is your net, the fish of Rikpa will never get caught in the net. of No matter whether you have a 3,000 IQ, it doesn't matter. Because Rikpa transcends, by its very nature, transcends all conceptual constructs. And that, just for starters, this is the real game, game, game ender or whatever, Rikpa transcends the, the conceptual categories of existence and non-existence. Just for starters. That should shut us up. Right? It transcends birth and death. It transcends coming and going. It transcends, okay, it's Rikpa, let's say, again, children's Rikpa and, and Tracy's Rikpa. Are they the one or are they the same? That's a good question, isn't it? One or the same? Well, here's the answer. Rikpa is neither one nor many. You can't enumerate it. So there it is. It's neither, neither the same nor different. So that should highlight the fact that when it comes to Rikpa, all words have a purely instrumental function. Like a hammer has a function to hammer nails, all the words have an instrumental function to lead us to the direct non-conceptual realization of Rikpa. That's all they're good for. If one says, well, never mind that. I just want to write a really good book about Rikpa. I want to nail it and get a PhD. You know, I've got to get my PhD, and so I'm going to get it in my thesis. You will certainly have a lot of words in your thesis, no question. So whenever we try to conceptualize how does Rikpa, how does something outside of space and time influence things taking place within space and time, like the flow of time and making decisions, you may as well just stop immediately. Because you've now, you're asking questions which are simply outside the domain of conceptualization. 
Does this mean then shut up and stop asking questions? Nope, it doesn't mean that. It does mean get it in sequence. So for for Vipassana, Shantideva says make your mind serviceable. And then step by step, can we know the nature of Rikpa? Can we know how does Rikpa interface with space and time? and individuation. Can we know that? How, what's such a relationship? Rikpa and the phenomenal world, can we know that? And can we answer that question? The answer is yes, we can. Only from the perspective of Rikpa. That's why all the words are instrumental leading just to that. Okay? Good, that's a good question. Oh yeah. Enjoy your dinner. See you tomorrow.